So we continue on in the book of Judges. And this morning, we come to the story of Deborah, the wife of torches, and Barak, the man of lightning, in Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. So take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 4, please. And My objective is that we'll get through this whole chapter um, this morning. And with God's help, we will that I will remain on, on track and not deviate and take uh, some excursions to the side. So anyway, we're talk, when I talk about this, this, this term, the story of Deborah and Barak, I actually, I, I hesitate to use the term story because in our culture, our tendency is that we categorize something as a story something that's made up, something that is not true, something that is fictional. So generally, when I'm teaching and preaching, I try to use the term account, because I do believe, as do most of you, I think, that what is in God's word is true. It really happened. It's not something made up. But as I thought about this, You know, another truth is that God does tell us stories in the Bible. A great deal of what is in the Bible is in story form. So God created us, I would say, as storytelling people and story-loving people. But I wonder now, in this day and age, if that is changing. Many people today especially us men, don't seem to have time for stories. And surveys of readership that have been made recently show that this is also occurring with women. Women are reading less and less. Now it seems we just want the facts. We only have time to get to the meat of the story. In viewing, excuse me, reading is often viewed Uh, especially by men, men I know, men I talk with, um, as a necessary evil uh, that they read in order to gain knowledge to fix something, whether it's mechanical or maybe personal. You know, how to, how to fix yourself books. Self-help books are, are, of course, very popular. But our reading seems to have a specific task-orientated function to it. But think about when we're told stories. I think when we're told stories, something happens. When we hear a story or we tell a story, our minds engage differently. We develop what's known as a poetic imagination, allowing us to understand and appreciate symbolic language, to connect themes, thoughts, and events that are separated in time and space. We make connections with them. Think about this. The central event of all history is told in story form in the Bible, in a unique genre called gospel, which at the essence are stories about the true events in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. This very apparent fact should lead us to realize that we're not called to be primarily grammarians of ancient languages or memorizers of versified theological truths. Not that these things aren't important. They are. They're very important. They have a proper place. But, moreover, I believe we are called to be interpreters of a story, a story that we have heard and that we are commanded to pass on. And to do this again requires that poetic imagination, something that we must develop. We're losing that in this day and age. So along these lines, I got caught up in doing some research on what people read. Now we've all heard, I've heard for years and years, that the Bible is the best-selling book in the world ever, the most read book ever. And I found very many surveys that supported that. I found other surveys that dropped the Bible from them. 
Um, and generally, if, the, if there was an explanation as to the data, it would explain that, well, the Bible is a collection of books. We're talking about a single book. Or we're not talking about religious books. Now, if you were to do this on your own, I'm going to warn you, if you start looking at these surveys, it's very depressing to see what people are reading nowadays, to see what they're being caught up in. And brothers and sisters, it's not great literature at all. So if the Bible is the most read book of all times, do you know what is number two on the list? Or number one, depending on the list, if it excludes, you know, the Bible. It's Don Coyote by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. And at over 900 pages, one scholar called it one of the greatest literary works ever written that most people have never read. But it's a bestseller, so I think people must buy it and look at it and open it and then put it on the shelf where it sits right next to their Bible. I got it, but I don't have time to read it. <laughs> look, look at the size of that book. No, I just don't have that time. If you know the story, undoubtedly many of you do, and unfortunately we seem to categorize it as a children's story, right? Because it's fanciful in a sense. It's about this old man in Spain. Old man, he's 50 years old. To me, he's just a youngster. An old man in Spain who loses his mind. He goes insane from reading. From reading books about knights in armor and chivalry. And he starts to think, this needs to be done again. I will become a knight errant, which is a wandering knight who goes out in search of adventures to prove his chivalric virtues. So Don Coyote goes out to rescue demons, excuse me, rescue damsels, <laughs> and defeat windmills, giants. And at one point in the story, one of his companions attempts to dissuade him from his knightly quests. And his companion says to him, Don Coyote, if following your natural inclinations, you still want to read books of adventure and chivalry, take the scriptures and read the book of Judges. And there you will find great truths and deeds as authentic as they are brave. Well, this is fantastic advice, isn't it, to read the scriptures. But there's a problem, I think, with the implication that is set along with this, that reading scriptures is safe. Reading scriptures won't cause you to leave your home and go out and rescue damsels or defeat giants. But really, is that what scriptures intended to do? To keep us safe at home? We think about what Don Coyote did. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He went out into the world, he rescued people, and he defeated giants, death, Satan. And this is what Christ has commanded us to do. And Don Quixote de la Mancha actually possessed a remarkably Christological view of the world that it needed saving, and he, even though 50 years of age, should venture forth to save it. Now, if you should happen at some point in the future to pick up Don Quixote and start to read it, I would advise you, read it with a Christological view of Don Quixote as a Christ symbol. And you'll see things in that book that I think are quite marvelous. And it'll be more than a fantastical tale for children. So I mention this because the stories we read in the Bible are intended to instruct us and to motivate us. We learn from them and we are compelled by them. That is why God tells us stories. And along those lines, I'm going to tell you a story this morning. Follow along with me as we read from Judges, chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. 
The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Again, we see that cycle of sin. It begins again after the death of Ehud. Now, sin, the message here, sin is repetitive. It's boring. But the enemies of your soul want you to think sin is glamorous. Think back when sin had a hold of you. We're told by the world and the flesh and the devil that sin is entertaining. It is cool and hip. Just look at who is sinning and how much fun they have. Celebrities, professional athletes, but, but I repeat myself, social media influencers. Okay, this is one thing that just kind of, if, if there are people on social media that are your influencers, as your pastors, one of your pastors, I just say, stop it. Stop. No one on social media should be influencing you. Okay, that is wrong. They're strangers. It's made up stuff. You have no idea who these people are. Just stop it. Sin gets dressed up by the world like Las Vegas at night. It looks so flashy. It looks so showy. But when you get close to it and you live in it, it's tawdry and tiresome. It's covered with thick, thick makeup that's garish and overdone to hide what's there. But when you get close, you can see it's lipstick on a rotting corpse. And this brings us quickly to my first point. Point number one is since our greatest need is salvation, religion without salvation is worthless. We see this in Israel after her judge dies. It's like a religious person without salvation. Just like Israel needed the presence of a judge to refrain from apostasy that they kept falling into, the religious person needs outside pressure to walk the straight and narrow and maintain the path his religion dictates because he's not experienced the true internal work of God in his life. He needs others like spouses, parents, church officials monitoring him and watching over him. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Judges, says this, There is something wrong with religion when its degree of fidelity depends solely on outside pressures, influences, and leadership. I thought about this. And I thought about the religions, the man-centered religions in our world today, and how this is true of them. I thought of the Roman Catholic Church and what they call auricular confession, where you go into that little booth and you tell your sins to another man, and this other man gives you penance that will cleanse you of your sins. Or it's like the Mormons and their what's called the temple recommend interviews, where you have to sit down with one of their bishops and the stake president and be interviewed and questioned before you're given a card that allows you entrance into one of their temples. These men decide if you're good enough for that. And the Jehovah Witnesses, the men that they call elders that run their church, do what is called shepherding calls, where they call upon the people in their, in their church, their so-called church, and they interview them, they question them about their lifestyles. The religious person needs this, needs this outside pressure. Because as we all should know, I'm sure we all have experienced this, on our own, trying to be good, trying to be quote-unquote religious, is an impossible task. And we may do it for a season, like Israel is able to do during the period of the judges, but we will fall away, we will fall into apostasy, unless God changes us internally, unless we are regenerated and we have the Holy Spirit with us. So we have this man in Judges, Sisera. He's the commander of the armies of Jabin, king of Canaan. And Sisera is the dominant enemy character in this chapter, in the following chapter, 5. 
His, his name is, is not Semitic, so we, we don't know where he's from. We don't know his hometown, but it's a, but it's a foreign name. Um, but he is the commander of the military forces in Canaan. The Israelites had been kept under control of this man for a long time. He had the means of pressure to keep the Israelites in line, just like the religious person needs. But his means were 900 chariots of iron. This is a formidable military force, one which the foot soldiers of the tribes of Israel would find find themselves seriously mismatched against, especially if they venture forth into the low coastal plains or the broad Jezreel Valley, where the chariots would rule the day. And so great was this Sisera's reputation, the Jewish legend describes him thusly. This comes from what's known as the Midrash, which is rabbinical commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures. Now, of course, it's not inspired. And as I read it, you'll realize that it is legendary. It doesn't sound very factual. It sounds like a legend. But nevertheless, this is how the Jews describe this general of the Canaanites. When he was 30 years old, he had conquered the whole world. At the sound of his voice, the strongest of walls fell in a heap, and the wild animals in the woods were chained to the spot by fear. The proportions of his body were vast beyond description. If he took a bath in the river and dived beneath the surface, enough fish were caught in his beard to feed a multitude, and it required no less than 900 horses to draw the chariot in which he rode. This, even though perhaps inflated a bit, you know, it's like reading the roster of the NFL teams when they give the size of the players. I played semi-pro ball, so I know how all that's inflated. I was shocked how big I was in a program, you know, that I read once. So uh, taking that into account, this, this still is a fearsome warrior, right? That's the, that's the message here. He, he, was, he was a man to be feared, and he controlled them. Now, now let's go on in the story. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10 that tell us, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you'll not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So here we meet Deborah. Her name means honeybee. That's a cute name. It's, it's, you know, I could imagine as a little girl her being named honeybee. What a cutie pie she must have been. And we're told she's the wife of this man, Lapidoth. Well, Lapidoth means torches or flashes. And Deborah is a prophetess. Now, this is not unusual in the Bible. There are prophetesses in the New Testament and the Old Testament. They're good ones and they're bad ones. It's not common, but women do at times have this role. And since she's a, pro- she's a prophetess, tells us that she's the agent by which the word of the Lord God, Yahweh, will enter the story to summon Barak to fulfill his role as a rescuer, a deliverer, a savior. And hence, for the first time in the story of Judges, we see 
judging and saving are clearly distinguished from one another. Before, they were combined in one man. So while those two functions may be combined, judges are not necessarily saviors. And saviors are not necessarily judges. This is just plain from the text. However, Deborah does play a crucial role in the saving of Israel in two senses that we should recognize. She settles disputes. It tells us the Israelites went up to her for judgment. So she saves from trouble within Israel. Now, this is the the traditional role of the judges as they were created uh, during the time of Exodus. But also, by commissioning Barak to deal with Jaban and Sisera, she saves Israel from trouble from without, from the external enemy. So Deborah's holding court, so to speak, under a palm tree in the territory of Ephraim, and she summons Barak. Now, Barak means lightning, and he's from the territory of Naphtali. The connection in the names here, the wife of torches or flashes and the man of lightning, some people surmise, well, Barak must be Deborah's husband, but I don't think that's the case. They're from two different territories, so we set that aside. But there's a connection here, isn't there? So she summons Barak to appear before her. This is evidence of her authority. And when he appears, she speaks a word from the Lord to him. Going back to the last part of verse 6 and verse 7, she says to Barak, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So Deborah, knowing what God had commanded Barak to do, remember she said, has not God told you this? That's a sign of her anointing as a prophetess. Now, at least we think this is wonderful, and, and not that it's bad, it's not bad, but there's something going on here that I think we have to recognize There's some people that read this in in today's world and think, finally, a woman has greater or equal power than a man. That it's a sign of early postmodern feminism breaking out in ancient, ancient Israel. But bear in mind that this happens during the time of the judges. During the time of the judges, nothing is going right in Israel. Nothing is how it should be. There's a leadership vacuum in Israel. And the Lord is driving home a point here about the failure in leadership in Israel when he raises up a woman to be a judge and to be a prophetess. Deborah was certainly anointed by the Lord. Deborah is certainly a great woman that we should honor. But the point is, the men... We're failing. God did raise up a deliverer, Barak. But apparently, this man raised up to be a deliverer is reluctant to answer God's call in his life. Barak's response to Deborah is shocking. In verse 8, he says, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she's telling him, remember, did not the Lord say this to you, to do this? Well, yeah, but you better come with me. You don't come with me. I'm not doing it. Brock's uncertainty, I find very unsettling. He lacks confidence in his own military leadership abilities, in the fighting abilities of the warriors and Ephtali and Zebulon, but most importantly, in the word of God, he lacks confidence. He is intimidated by Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron. But what exactly does he hope to gain by having Deborah go with him on this expedition? Is she to intercede with God when God's promise fails? Or is it to test her authenticity? In essence, to put her money where her mouth is. 
if you want me to go against this guy with all these chariots, you're coming with me. Well, perhaps it's both. But in, in any case, it is a sign of Barak's doubting. Deborah answers him and says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. The Lord has the ability to sell this fierce general. He owns Sisera, just like he owns every other human being. He has created them. He can do with them what they will. And with Barak's request, of course, Deborah accompanies him. Barak is warned that he will not be the means of Sisera's defeat. The honor will go to a woman, which naturally, when we're reading this, we would assume it's Deborah, that she's going to be the one to gather the glory. That's how we would expect the story to unfold. But there's an unexpected twist coming, and that's the marvelous thing about God's stories, is he puts unexpected twists in them, things that if we don't know the story and we're reading it, we're like, wow, I didn't see that coming. This brings us to our second point. The source of our salvation is the Lord God, not people. Barak seems to think that Deborah is the key to Israel's salvation. She's important. God is certainly using her. But she's not the means of salvation. And this is a necessary reminder to us. It is the Lord who brings victory. And we should not care which human instrument seems to shine the most in accomplishing this. Think of, of the, the, the threat. You could call it that. I don't think she meant it. She's just speaking a truth that Deborah said to Barak, this, this choice you're making, this road you're going down to will not lead to your glory. In the end... It doesn't matter. We should not be seeking glory. It doesn't matter who is doing the Lord's will. And sometimes in any organization, and we all are in organizations, that can be a huge stumbling block for us. We don't like to see others outshine us. That's our sin nature. That's our fallen nature speaking out. We need to guard against that. Salvation is of the Lord. And it is of the Lord's prerogative who he uses for his salvation. Going on with the story, verses 11 through 17. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hegoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hegayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jaben, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So in verse 11 here, we see these Kenites. They appear again in the story. And remember back in chapter 1, we saw them, that they, they had allied themselves with the tribe of Judah. And they had joined with Israel. They had been asked to accompany them on the exodus because they knew the desert. They knew where all the wells were. They knew the way to go. So they're along with the Israelites for many, many years. And they go up with the tribe of Judah when Judah is told, you need to conquer and drive out the inhabitants of this land. But when the Kenites got up there into the hill country with um, the tribe of Judah, they changed sides. They decided, uh, we've had enough of this. We're going to, you know, settle in with these people. 
So now we read that one of the Kenites had separated himself from his fellow tribesmen and settled far away from his people to a place that just happens to be very close to the site of this battle between Brock's army and Sisera's army. An odd and seemingly random detail. Why are we even told this? But it has major implications in the story. At this point in the story, Barak is gathering his forces on Mount Tabor, as the Lord directed him to do. Now, Mount Tabor is located at the junction of the territories of Naphtali and Zebulon, where he's drawing the forces of his army from. And Sisera receives intelligence regarding this. He calls out, he musters his entire chariot force, 900 chariots of iron. And he gathers them on the Jezreel plain, just below Mount Tabor. Each opposing force is now in territory that is most suitable for them. Barak's infantry is in mountainous terrain. Chariots cannot fight in the mountains. They are secure where they are. The chariots are on the plain. This is what what they are built and designed for, fighting on open ground. Each side is safe where they are. They they, they are at a, a stalemate, essentially, tactically. And the one that moves is the one that's going to put themselves in jeopardy. They're just waiting it out for a while. Think about this. Think if we were up on that mountain, if we were part of Barak's forces and we're looking down at 900 iron chariots waiting for us. Now our son, Kenny, he served as an Abrams tank crewman for six years in the Army. He drove an M1A1. And we got to go out to Fort Irwin one weekend when they were on maneuvers. And he gave us a tour of his tank. Those things are monsters. You stand in front of an Abrams and it towers over your head. We went inside of it and it's just, it just remar- a remarkable piece of technology. And as a father, I felt pretty good. If my son has to go to war, he's in that thing. That's, that's, that's the place to be. But I was thinking, imagine an infantryman facing that beast on a battlefield. My gosh, how would you not throw down your weapon and run for your life? Well, these iron chariots were the equivalent of the M1A1 main battle tank of the day. And infantrymen would be petrified to go up against a chariot. So we, hypothetically, would be with Barak's forces. If you're not with Christ, though, you are between Mount Tabor and the plains of Jezreel. You're in between these forces. There's no neutral ground for you, friend. If you are not in Christ's camp, you were in Sisera's camp. Sisera is a type for Satan in this story. He is that evil. This is a horrible, horrible man, and we'll read more about him in chapter 5, just how horrible he is. But he's worse than double wicked Kushan, who we read about earlier. These opponents are getting worse as the Israelites are becoming weaker. If you're between these two forces, it's time to decide which side you're on, because there's no neutral ground. The battle will be joined and people will find themselves on one side or the other. Strategically though, we've been talking tactically, strategically though, Barak has the advantage. However, Deborah must remind him of this and she needs to goad him into action. She says to him, up, get up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? She's she's got to kind of spur him on. She's got to kind of reprimand him. She's got to order him to do what he knows he must do. But strategically, she's speaking a very 
important truth. Barak's forces have the divine warrior on their side. They're not fighting alone. Barak has been told that the outcome of this battle has been determined. Victory is assured. Finally, Barak and his 10,000 charge down the mountain into the plain of Jezreel to face 900 iron chariots. Surprisingly, unbelievably, the battle is decisive. Sisera's forces are routed and destroyed to the man. How did that happen? Well, stay tuned. We'll see this in chapter 5. God tells us. However, although these forces are destroyed to a man, the great and feared commander himself escaped. The mighty chariot general jumps off his chariot, takes to his feet, and runs as fast as he can from the battlefield. Verse 17 tells us, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabban, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. This brings us to the third point I want to make, point number three. The Lord's act of salvation involves seemingly minute details beyond our comprehension until much later after the fact, perhaps even unknown to us until we are joined with the Lord in his eternal kingdom. We may not even realize these small details that go into his saving of us. Now we understand the importance of this obscure Kenite pulling up stakes and moving north from where his, Ken, his kinsmen had settled in the territory of Judah. And in this new place, he had made a peace treaty with the dread Sisera. Sisera remembers this and heads for Hebrews' tents. This is all part of God's providence to bring about victory for Israel and defeat for Sisera, the Canaanite commander. And our God still injects these marvelous bits of providential details into the lives of his people. Many of us looking back and reflecting on our lives see God's hand in some tiny bit of divine trivia. Something that seemed totally unrelated to anything of importance. Yet it turned out to be a door of mercy that God had opened for us. That God had placed in front of us and opened at just the right moment. Not even Hebrews moving camel, because there were no U-Haul franchises in Canaan. Even his moving camel was part of God's plan. This small detail of him uprooting his family, moving away from his tribe, was God's doing. A God who does this is a God to be loved, to be worshipped and obeyed, a God to be trusted. Going on in the story, verses 18 through 21, And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. In the story, in this part of the story, can you sense the fear of this mighty warrior? Jael, the wife of Heber, does. She offers him the sanctuary of her tent. She calms him and tells him, do not be afraid. Sisera is exhausted and dehydrated, and fear will do that to you. Undoubtedly, many of you have experienced that sort of fear. So Sisera lays down. He asks for a drink of water. She gives him goat's milk instead. 
Now, the interesting thing is goat's milk induces sleepiness. Just think of the, the old uh, aid for insomnia, the, the war, a glass of warm milk, right? Same thing, but goat milk's even better. And she covers him with a rug. And he orders her to stand guard. If any man comes to you and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But when he's sound asleep, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer and moving slowly and silently up to the slumbering Sisera, she drives the tent peg with a hammer through his head into the ground. So this evil, evil man dies. Not in battle, at the hand of a mighty man of valor, but unexpectedly at the hand of a woman as he hides in her tent, exhausted after being chased from the battlefield. He's chased from the battlefield by lightning from the top of the mountain. Remember that what Barak's name means. Lightning from the top of a mountain. That's a theophany, brothers and sisters. That's a God appearance. That's God at work in this. And what we're seeing in the, in the story of the judges is as Israel is rescued from their foreign oppressors, that God makes these horrible men, these horrible enemies, he makes them ridiculous in their defeat. Sisera, the man whose very name caused animals to be chained in fear, according to the Jews. So big that many fish would be caught in his beard when he swam in the river. Is killed by a woman. Just like Barak had to be pushed in to action by a woman. Now when we read the Bible, we should always attempt, because this is really where we are, identify with the person who is struggling the most. We should not look down upon Barak, but we should read about Barak and think, you know what? I hate to admit it, but yeah, I can see myself in that. I can see myself. I can see myself. I have seen myself in that situation where I've had to be urged, shoved into doing what God would have me do. So this theophany from the mountain, the lightning from the mountaintop, routed him from the battlefield, Sisera. Barak and 10,000 screaming Israelites charged down that mountain. Yet, the text plainly tells us it was Yahweh, the Lord God, the divine warrior who defeated the mighty Canaanite forces. But Israel needed to act. This brings us to our fourth point, our last point. It is the Lord's prerogative and the Lord's alone to determine the means of our salvation. Some are bothered that the saving of Israel here in the story comes through a violent act. And to add to their heartburn, it involves treachery. Because was there not a peace treaty between this woman's husband and the Canaanite leaders? Yes, there was. But the people that are bothered by this, I suppose, would prefer that this man who, as verse 3 tells us, cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years, cruelly oppressed. Now, Hebrew writings are are very sparse in detail. We we know that. But there's something here in cruelly oppressed. We're going to unpack that later when we get to chapter 5. And we're going to see just what this man did in oppressing Israel. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, it's horrendous, absolutely horrendous what he did. And we're told very little. So there's probably a lot more, but it was cruel. Cruel during a cruel time. And there's a problem some have that Jael Jael did not adhere to the peace treaty that her husband had with Sisera. But think about this. This man is cruelly oppressing all the people. 
this peace treaty, do you think it was entered into voluntarily? That there was, a, there was an actual meet and confer over this? That Sisera, Jabin, order, you know, offered some concessions to Heber and Heber counter-offered? No, I tell you, without a doubt, Heber made this treaty to save his and his family's life, that he was in mortal fear, rightfully so, of these Canaanite evil men. Undoubtedly, he's coerced into this for his survival, for his wife's survival, for his family's survival. People who are bothered by this, I think, are the same people who I've talked to who tie themselves into ethical knots over the hypothetical questions like whether or not they would have lied to the Nazis about the Jews hiding in the attic. Well, we're not to bear false witness, so. Yes, stormtrooper, they're up there. But God bless you. This, I suggest, is the real problem of evil today. People refusing to recognize it when it is staring you in the face, making excuses for it and blindly pretending that this evil really doesn't mean what it says, that it's an expressed intention to destroy you. They don't really mean that. No, we need to just stay calm about this. We need to recognize evil. We need to recognize evil for what it is, just as Jael did. And God used Jael. He used Heber's move, well, directed it, I think, is, is, is better, more correct than using it. He directed this move to put Jael in the exact place to use a hammer to kill a scourge of God's people. The prophet Jeremiah in the 23rd chapter of his book, he says, this is a word from God that Jeremiah has given. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God uses unexpected people to accomplish his will in unexpected ways. Jael is not outside of the will of God in what she did. As we wrap up the story, verses 22 and 24, we're told, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with the tent peg, in his temple. Deborah's prophecy had come to pass, but in an unexpected manner. Barak had been told his glory as the rescuer of, evil, of Israel would be given to a woman. But this woman who received the glory was not the wise judge and prophetess, Deborah, but the wife of a nomadic tent dweller that wasn't even an Israelite. Barak, as he stands there, picture him. Think back to the last story we saw in Judges, where King Eglon was killed by Ehud. Think of King Ehud's, King Eglon's retainer standing at the door of his royal chamber, impotently staring at their king dead on the floor. This is what we're seeing in Barak. Barak is like those retainers. He's standing there impotently. He's seeing how he failed in his duty, what he was supposed to do, and to do it in the manner God had directed. God still accomplished the task, but his job as the military leader of Israel was stripped from him and given to a nomadic woman from outside the tribe of Israel. What does Brock say? Nothing. He's rendered mute by what he sees and by the implication of what has occurred and how he has failed. And again, we should identify with Barak in his failure. We've been there, all of us. We should see ourselves 
but how God still blesses us in our failures. And we see this in verses 23 and 24 as we close. So on that day, God subdued Jebin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabban, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabban, king of Canaan. By the prophetic orders of Deborah and through the actions of Barak and Jael, Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, is killed along with every single one of his men. But the text clearly tells us that it was God who did this. And God continued in an unrelenting fashion through his people Israel to pressure the Canaanites until Jaban, their king, was destroyed. Remember, this is the time of the judges. Things are not as they should be in Israel. Men are disobedient. Men are cowardly. Things are a mess, frankly. It's much like our time, isn't it? But, and here's the but, God is victorious, always. God defeats the enemy before the battle is even joined, always. God prevails, always. Join me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the rescue you have provided us, Father. We give thanks that we are able, sometimes with nudging, we need nudging, Lord, you know that. We respond to your direction, Father. We desire, we, your people, desire to be obedient to your call, Father. Guide us. Send the Holy Spirit to us to guide us as to where we should go, Father, how we should respond, that we be obedient at all times, that we represent our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ, to all people, that we demonstrate the love of our Savior to them, that we witness to them in a way that only you can make effective. Father, We ask for blessing upon the rest of this day, Father. We ask for blessing upon the wonderful baptism we are about to witness as we welcome our sister Rachel into our flock as a member. Father, bless this time ahead. We give thanks for all of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.